Okay, well, I also greet you with a good morning and thank you for coming. And I see in the audience some of the players who put on the P.G. Woodhouse play yesterday, and we just want to thank you. It was, I hope it's the first of many. It was just absolutely delightful. So we have a very interesting topic today, and we could go in many directions with it. We could go, you are all sinners, or we could go... What can we do about this mess we find ourselves in? <laughs> so let's, let's use the second approach. But I want to start with reading one of Yoganandaji's beautiful prayer poems from Whispers from Eternity. This is, Demand to set fire to the forest of darkness. I built a fire of devotion in the dark forest of delusion. Alas, the fire only smoldered. Then thou didst come and set fire to a few of my frailties. That fire quickly spread, consuming the bushes of my prickly desires, my tall, towering vanities, and the thick underbrush of my arrogance. The whole forest of my darkness is blazing, and I behold only thy light shining everywhere. I thank thee, Father, for thy help. Help me thus always. Let me open a path of light for all to follow. That's a nice one. So when we're talking about how we stray from the path, fall off the path, get stuck in uh, quagmire on the path. We all, we've been there, done that. But there are tools that our guru has given us to help us keep moving forward and not to get pulled down by all the distractions that are so omnipresent. And the first thing we'll talk about, there, there are three, three areas I want to share with you, and, and the problem and then the solution, or possible solution. I have a special guest who just came. So the first and this is what it talks about primarily with Judas and in the reading about the Gita, from the Gita. And that's the things that we can, that we're aware of, the problems in our life that we know trip us up time and time again. And one could say these are the conscious problems. We can talk about desires, but you, it, it's so multifaceted. You know, you pick up a magazine in the dentist's office about new cars, and all of a sudden you're looking at that new Tesla. Oh my God, it's self-driving, and it has ludicrous mode, and all of a sudden it just starts <laughs> awakening all these desires. And then we look at our car, and it's so clunky, and we, we're just not as happy as we were than when we picked up that automotive magazine. Or maybe you're in the dentist's office and there's the new edition of 
Gun and Hunter or whatever it is, and you see all these wonderful, wonderful air rifles, and the, those sights on it are so good, and you can just really focus in on that deer and kill it so much more effectively. And you think, oh, gosh, my gun is just old and clunky. And so it goes. The world is always saying, what about this and what about that? And we can't have all of it. The few people in the world can, but most of us can't. And so what happens? It describes it in the Gita. We have desires, and they get thwarted. And we know we shouldn't have those desires. We know we shouldn't be attracted to that person, or we know we shouldn't eat that gallon of ice cream, but we do. <laughs> and on, and then, then we either get a stomach ache, or because the person doesn't reciprocate, we get frustrated, we get angry, and then with anger, it just gives this lovely laundry list in the Gita about how to fall flat on your face. And then with frustrated desire, and anger, then we begin getting confused, and the world becomes just this tormenting chamber that we have to live in of unfulfilled desires. And then we kind of forget, wait a minute, that's not me. I didn't really want that gun. I didn't really want that Tesla. But but we forget, and we lose sight of who we are. So these are conscious things. And honestly, these are the easiest to work on, because we're aware of them. And what are the tools to work with these? Well, resistance. When you see that gallon of ice cream, I had a woman, um, I was talking to two friends once, and one said, um, and they both really liked ice cream, and they were trying to wean themselves from it. And one said, well, you know what I do? I get a gallon, and then I put it in little half-cup containers in my freezer, and then I only eat one at a time. And the older, more experienced woman said, honey, I would just eat all the little half-cup <laughs> containers in the freezer. It wouldn't help. But what? so what do we have? We have resistance. Even if you can't break the habit, Resistance is important. If you say, okay, I've given up all hope, I'm just jumping in head over heels into this gallon of ice cream, or if you just say, I don't want to be doing this, and begin exerting willpower. And Master said in today's, we have a little word or quote a day from autobiography that dear friends put together every year, and the quote for today was so perfect. Master said, astrologers would do my chart, and they would tell me the most difficult times in my life astrologically. But I would say, I will choose to accomplish more in that period, just to show that I am not, I can resist and I can use my willpower. And, and Master said, it built my faith in those two aspects, the power of divine protection and the use of God-given willpower to overcome any problems. So with the conscious desires that you see, you know about them, you know they're problematic, at least resist and use the willpower to, to try to overcome them. And little by little, you know what happens? Maybe not overnight, maybe not right away, maybe it takes years, but the willpower gets stronger than the attraction. And over time, it, you just start thinking, 
why did that bother me so much? I'm stronger than that is. So that's the first level where delusion grabs us. And in a way, as I say, it's the easier one because you're aware of it. Now, the harder one, the desires and the attachments and the things that make us go off the path, those are those subconscious patterns that seem so much a part of us that we're really not even aware they're there. So maybe there's a tendency to and to always justify. If somebody says, no, you didn't do that right. Oh, yes, I did. What are you talking about? The, the pushback of the ego, that's really all it is. And it comes in a million different ways. Self-justification, lying, defensiveness, um, all these little patterns that we think are who we are, but they're not who we are. They're just tendencies and subconscious patterns that we've allowed to come along for the ride on the spiritual path, come along on the journey. And they're tricky because we're not always aware of them. You know, we can have the tendency to be, and I've seen people, to be critical, like Anything that happens, they find the fault with it. And you just start thinking, you know, you don't need to be that way. Why don't you just look at that pattern in yourself and stand back and say, that's not me. That's not how I want to be. But um, there's a, I'm reading a wonderful book now that some friends of ours from Chennai, India sent us. It's called The Gift. Lesson, subtitle, Lessons for the Modern World from my grandfather, Mahatma Gandhi. And it's written by Gandhi's grandson, Arun Gandhi. And it's a wonderful book. I really recommend it. But there was, and so it's different lessons in, for what's happening in the world. And th this one was talking about uh, self-justification. And so Arun uh, lived with Gandhi for two years at Sevagram Ashram outside of Pune. And he was about 12 years old to 14 for those two years. And Arun says, you know, everyone else knew him as this great world leader, as this saint. But for me, he was just Bapuji, the grandfather who gave me unconditional love and changed my life. And he tells so many stories, they're so beautiful. But one story, um, he was, and, and Gandhi was surrounded by you know world leaders and making critical decisions. And this was at the time, historically, right after he was released from that long stay in prison during which his wife, Kasturabai, died. And it was just before the Indian independence. So it was a very critical time for India. And so they were staying at some, there was a conference at some uh, hotel, and God, the ashram was utterly simple. I mean, dirt floors, mud huts, everyone did seva every day. But there they were staying in this fancy hotel. And so little Arun was sort of sitting by himself, and he felt someone come up behind him and say, would you like to join me for breakfast? And he turned around, and it was Nehru who was about to become the first prime minister, and he wanted to seem important. So he said, oh, yes, I will join you for breakfast. So they went into the dining room, and, and Nehru said, what are you going to order? 
And Arun said, well, he was inwardly nervous. He said, whatever you have. And he said, oh, I'm not so sure. I'm going to order an omelet. And your grandfather is a very strict vegetarian. He doesn't eat eggs. I'm not sure he would let you eat eggs. You go and ask him. So he runs in, and Gandhi's in the middle of a big meeting with, you know, world <laughs> officials. And he says, grandfather, can I have an omelet for breakfast? And Gandhi just turned and gave him his utter attention. And someone, one of the officials, uh, kind of complained and said, tell the boy not to bother us now. And Gandhi said, this is between me and my grandson. And he just did that. And so he, and Gandhi asked him, have you ever had eggs before? And he said, yes, my family in South Africa, that's where they live. They, we've eaten eggs. He said, all right then. And he went and he ate the eggs, which first time ever, didn't really like them. Months passed. And then his parents came. And Gandhi never said anything about it. Then his, uh, Arun's parents came. The, his father was Gandhi's son. And he wa and one of the other people in the ashram said, Babaji wants to see you. You better go right away. And he got a little afraid. He said, do you know what it's about? He said, no, but you better go. So he came running into Babaji's hut, and there were his parents kneeling very humbly before Babaji. And Gandhi looked up at Arun, and he said, you told me you had eaten eggs before, but your parents say you have never eaten eggs. Who am I to believe? And little Arun said he was just terrified. And then he said, again, this is the path of the slippery slope that leads you away from from finding the joy of God. He said, well, my parents would buy cakes from the bakery, and I'm sure those had eggs in them. And Gandhi looked at him. And then he started laughing, and he said, you will make a very good lawyer. <laughs> and that's all he said. But Arun said, I saw myself in that moment. And I saw there was no judgment, there was no criticism, but there was love and acceptance, but holding to the truth. And so all the little webs that we re weave around ourselves, oh, this isn't true, and this is okay, and I can get away with this when things aren't going well. But what's the antidote? To hold it up to the guru and just say, Lord, I can't even begin to see what's motivating me, that keeps me bound, that keeps me dancing around the ego and worshiping it. I can't even see what's there. But you can see, just like Bapuji, he knew, he knew he had lied, but he didn't judge him. And and Arun said, from that day on, I never told a lie and I never justified myself. If Gandhi had yelled at him, punished him, I doubt he would have had the same reaction. But so how do we get out of those downward things? Call on the guru, meditate, pray, just say, Lord, I can't do this by myself. I can't even see those subconscious patterns, but you see them. And please help me to see them so I can change. So in the uh, affirmation we read, it was perfect tied together with this because these patterns are of the subconscious mind. And in the little essay on introspection, Swamiji says, Hold your desires up to the superconscious mind. That's the guru. The guru is that highest part of ourselves. And ask for the power to transform them. So 
it's it's a fascinating thing, but we have to be willing to question our first premises of who we are. Well, I always gossip. Well, I always take the biggest piece for myself. You know, it, it's like we don't need to be that way. But it takes the grace of a higher, of a superconscious power. And that's what the guru is. The guru isn't somebody that you worship and fan and put flowers on the altar. He's that, but he's that's the least of what it is. The guru is that angel which wrestles your demons to the ground on your behalf because we can't do it by ourselves. And if we understand that, then we say, please, let's get in the wrestling match with the ego and let's knock him down. <laughs> Somebody's going like this in the background. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a life and death struggle, but only with the grace of the guru, only that way. And then, so we have our conscious desires and habits that would keep us limited. We have our subconscious ones that are more insidious because they, they seem like they're us, but they're not us. And then there's a third aspect of how we get tripped up, and that's the influence of our environment, the world around us. And right now, we're living in a time where people are so confused, where there are no moral anchors with which to ground ourselves. There's a beautiful story I read some years ago from a book called Nurtured with Love by Dr. Suzuki. Suzuki was the Japanese uh, violinist and music teacher who developed the Suzuki method of teaching children to play the violin. And he was a very, he and his family were very refined. He was a music professor, and they were living in Japan at the time, during before, during, and after the Second World War. So it was not an easy time to have a life of order and refinement in Japan after the war. And there were many little street orphans who whose parents had been killed during the war. And so Mr. Dr. and Mrs. Suzuki had their own children, and they had a very simple, but as the Japanese culture develops, a very ordered and refined life. And it was something that was just a part of how they lived. And then they brought this little street urchin, adopted a little war orphan into their home, who had never knew his parents, just had fended for himself on the streets, no training, no culture. And he was like a little wild animal, a little feral cat off the street. And he just totally disrupted the order of the house and the way they did things. And Mrs. Suzuki came to her husband and said, this is impossible. How can I run the household in the way that we have enjoyed with this child in our home? And Dr. Suzuki said, yes, you are right. We all need to be much more disciplined and refined and to be a model for him, not judging the child, not criticizing, not blaming or punishing. And so this went on for a number of times. The child didn't really catch on. Mrs. Suzuki would complain. Dr. Suzuki said, you are right. We must need to be more refined. And finally, after some period of time, that vibration went out strongly enough in the household that the little boy started to understand and eventually was able to be an assimilated and integrated member of the family. Well, 
we live in such times, even though our country and the world has not, is not in an active war, but where do we find the values? Where do we find truth? When ev most everything we read in media is untrustworthy. How do we find it? With How do we find how to behave? How do we find how to base our lives? Well, and then we get drawn in. We get drawn in. You see people doing things that I think in a time of more acceptance and appreciation of others, time of greater sense of brotherhood, people wouldn't be acting like that. But because the thought forms are going out of divisiveness and, and condemnation of people that aren't exactly the same as you, weaker people are picking up on that. And so, and it affects us as well. We're not immune to it. We're not immune to those downward pulling influences that pull us off a sense of universal, unconditional love. And so, just as Mr. Suzuki, Dr. Suzuki said, we have to be stronger in the principles that we believe in. And what are they, those principles? They've been there all along. Every religion teaches the same ones. The golden rule. We, someone gave us a, a little uh, bookmark, some time ago, and it had the golden rule as it was expressed in a dozen different religions, but it was the same thought, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. To look at the Ten Commandments, look at the Yamas and the Niyamas, they're reflections of the same truth, of principles. You know, in India they don't call what their religion Hinduism, they call it Sanatan Dharma, the eternal righteousness. And Swamiji wrote in commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita, he said, even if every living soul was destroyed, every life was destroyed on this planet, the principles of Sanatan Dharma would still be present because they are the fabric, they are the DNA of creation. And that's a very hopeful thought. It's not if I believe in them or you believe in them, if he practices them and she doesn't. It has nothing to do with our buying into them. They are eternal, but we can amplify them by, the, by saying these are principles that are eternal and I will live my life based on these principles, on honesty. If everyone else cheats, do I cheat? Look at the principles on which all higher thinking is founded. That when you read in this book, uh, The Gift by Ga about Gandhi, it's so thrilling because you feel the power of ahimsa, of nonviolence, the principle. In the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. In the Niyamas and Niyamas, of nonviolence, but you feel because this is the DNA of this creation, when we align ourselves with it, then we draw that power of that principle. And the, the truthfulness, if we say, 
I am not going to justify anything I do. I am not going to deceive myself. But every word and every action will reflect truth. We draw. We not only draw that power to ourselves, but we put it out. It it becomes accessible to people in a time of confusion. There's a. We recently watched a movie which was okay called A Wrinkle in Time. It's it was it was good and bad, but the un, there was a in it it's the struggle of this uh, young girl trying to rescue her father who's lost in a time warp essentially. Um, it's a good the book was much better than the movie, but essentially there's this force called the it, and that's the force of darkness. And they explain it. Whenever there's a situation, what is the it? Whenever there's a situation where someone might be jealous of someone else's accomplishments or perhaps cheat a little bit in their business, the it says, yes, let's do this. Let's go there. And that's, and that's prevalent now. And Gandhi also said, materialism and morality increase in inverse proportion. So the more materialistic the world is, the more morality declines. The more morality declines, it's not that the world becomes poor, but it becomes not attached. It becomes free of the desire for power, for money, for sex, for all the, the celebrations of the lower chakras. And so, we need to align ourselves with eternal principles, not only for ourselves, that's the least of it, but to, over, to supersede those confusing thought forms of there is no truth, there is no values, I can get away with anything, watch me do it. In our hearts we know this is wrong. We can't fight the world out there in a, in a physical way but we can do our part to enhance the eternal principles that God has given us that are a part of not only the DNA of creation, but we are a part of creation. It's who we are. And if we deny it, if we look away, then we're only diminishing our own selves. We need heroes now. Heroes who stand up and say, truth is real, I will live for it. Nonviolence is real. I will live for it. The principles of Sanatan Dharma, of eternal values, they are real. And we all must join together and live it. And if a small, even a small group of people can live in that way, some person on the other side of the world, some young person in China who is despairing now, saying, what has become of idealism? What has become of truth? And maybe as that despair starts to come, they feel a little breeze, and that breeze is sent out by the thoughts of people striving to live in truth. And those little thoughts uplift them, and they say, I will keep trying. I believe in this. I will not succumb to indifference, to despair, to valuelessness and immorality. So, how do devotees fall? By not resisting, by not calling on higher powers, by ignoring eternal truths. 
we don't have to go there. We can rise. And in our spiritual elevation, we can help many others who are also seeking the way out of delusion.